0: Section Nineteen of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book One This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gregory Wagenfuhr. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book One by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter Twelve God distinguished from idols, that he may be the exclusive object of worship. Sections 1. Scripture, in teaching that there is but one God, does not make a dispute about words, but attributes all honor and religious worship to him alone. This proved, first, by the etymology of the term, second, by the testimony of God himself, when he declares that he is a jealous God, and will not allow himself to be confounded with any fictitious deity. 2. The Papists, in opposing this pure doctrine, gain nothing by their distinction of dulia and Latria. 3. Passages of Scripture subversive of the Papistical distinction and proving that religious worship is due to God alone. PERVERSIONS OF DIVINE WORSHIP 1. We said at the commencement of our work that the knowledge of God consists not in frigid speculation— but carries worship along with it, and we touched, by the way, on what will be more copiously treated in other places, viz., how God is duly worshipped. Now I only briefly repeat that whenever Scripture asserts the unity of God, it does not contend for a mere name, but also enjoins that nothing which belongs to divinity be applied to any other, thus making it obvious in what respect pure religion differs from superstition. The Greek word Eusebia means right worship, for the Greeks, though groping in darkness, were always aware that a certain rule was to be observed, in order that God might not be worshipped absurdly. Cicero, truly and shrewdly, derives the name religion from relego, and yet the reason which he assigns is forced and far-fetched, viz. that honest worshippers read and read again, and ponder what is true. I rather think the name is used in opposition to vagrant license. The greater part of mankind rashly taking up whatever first comes in their way, whereas piety, that it may stand with a firm step, confines itself within due bounds. In the same way superstition seems to take its name from its not being contented with the measure which reason prescribes but accumulating a superfluous mass of vanities. But, to say nothing more of words, it has been universally admitted in all ages that religion is vitiated and perverted whenever false opinions are introduced into it, and hence it is inferred that whatever is allowed to be done from inconsiderate zeal cannot be defended by any pretext with which the superstitious may choose to cloak it. But although this confession is in every man's mouth, A shameful stupidity is forthwith manifested, inasmuch as men neither cleave to the one God nor use any selection in their worship, as we have already observed. But God, in vindicating his own right, first proclaims that he is a jealous God, and will be a stern avenger if he is confounded with any false God, and thereafter defines what due worship is, in order that the human race may be kept in obedience. Both of these he embraces in his law when he first binds the faithful in allegiance to him as their only lawgiver, and then prescribes a rule for worshipping him in accordance with his will. The law, with its manifold uses and objects, I will consider in its own place. At present I only advert to this, one, that it is designed as a bridle to curb men and prevent them from turning aside to spurious worship but it is necessary to attend to the observation with which I set out, viz. that, unless everything peculiar to divinity is confined to God alone, he is robbed of his honor, and his worship is violated. It may be proper here, more particularly, to attend to the subtleties which superstition employs. In revolting to strange gods, it avoids the appearance of abandoning the supreme god, or reducing him to the same rank with others. It gives him the highest place, but at the same time surrounds him with a tribe of minor deities, among whom it portions out his peculiar offices. In this way, though in a dissembling and crafty manner, the glory of the godhead is dissected, and not allowed to remain entire. In the same way the people of old, both Jews and Gentiles, placed an immense crowd in subordination to the father and ruler of the gods, and gave them, according to their rank, to share with the supreme God in the government of heaven and earth. In the same way, too, for some ages past, departed saints have been exalted to partnership with God, to be worshipped, invoked, and lauded in his stead." And yet we do not even think that the majesty of God is obscured by this abomination, whereas it is in a great measure suppressed and extinguished. All that we retain being a frigid opinion of His supreme power. At the same time, being deluded by these entanglements, we go astray after diverse gods. 2. The distinction of what is called dulia and Latria was invented for the very purpose of permitting divine honors to be paid to angels and dead men with apparent impunity for it is plain that the worship which papists pay to saints differs in no respect from the worship of god for this worship is paid without distinction only when they are pressed they have recourse to the evasion that what belongs to god is kept unimpaired because they leave him latria. But since the question relates not to the word but the thing, how can they be allowed to sport at will with a matter of the highest moment? But not to insist on this, the utmost they will obtain by their distinction is that they give worship to God and service to the others, for Latria in Greek has the same meaning as worship in Latin, whereas Dulia properly means service though the words are sometimes used in Scripture indiscriminately. But granting that the distinction is invariably preserved, the thing to be inquired into is the meaning of each. Dulea unquestionably means service, and Latreia worship. But no man doubts that to serve is something higher than to worship. For it were often a hard thing to serve him whom you would not refuse to reverence. It is therefore an unjust division to assign the greater to the saints and leave the less to God. But several of the ancient fathers observed this distinction. What if they did, when all men see that it is not only improper, but utterly frivolous? 3. Laying aside subtleties, let us examine the thing. When Paul reminds the Galatians of what they were before they came to the knowledge of God, he says that they, did service unto them which by nature are no gods. End quote. Galatians 4.8 Because he does not say latria was their superstition excusable? This superstition to which he gives the name Dulia, he condemns as much as if he had given it the name latria When Christ repels Satan's insulting proposal with the words, quote, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Quote, Matthew 4.10 There was no question of Latreia, for all that Satan asked was proscunesis, parentheses, obeisance, and parentheses. In like manners, when John is rebuked by the angel for falling on his knees before him, Revelation 19.10, 22.8, and 9, we ought not to suppose that John had so far forgotten himself as to have intended to transfer the honor due God alone to an angel. But because it was impossible that a worship connected with religion should not savor somewhat of divine worship, he could not proscunane, parentheses, do obeisance to, and the angel without derogating from the glory of God. True, we often read that men were worshipped, but that was if i may so speak civil honour the case is different with religious honour which the moment it is conjoined with worship carries profanation of the divine honour along with it the same thing may be seen in the case of cornelius acts ten twenty five he had not made so little progress in piety as not to confine supreme worship to God alone, therefore, when he prostrates himself before Peter, he certainly does it not with the intention of adoring him instead of God, yet Peter sternly forbids him. And why? But just because men never distinguish so accurately between the worship of God and the creatures, as not to transfer promiscuously to the creature that which belongs only to God. Therefore, if we would have one God, let us remember that we can never appropriate the minutest portion of His glory without retaining what is His due. Accordingly, when Zechariah discourses concerning the repairing of the church, he distinctly says not only that there would be one God, but also that He would have only one name, the reason being that He might have nothing in common with idols. THE NATURE OF THE WORSHIP WHICH GOD REQUIRES WILL BE SEEN IN ITS OWN PLACE, BOOK two, CHAPTERS 7 AND 8. HE HAS BEEN PLEASED TO PRESCRIBE IN HIS LAW WHAT IS LAWFUL AND RIGHT, AND THUS RESTRICT MEN TO A CERTAIN RULE, LEST ANY SHOULD ALLOW THEMSELVES TO DEVISE A WORSHIP OF THEIR OWN. BUT AS IT IS INEXPEDIENT TO BURDEN THE READER BY MIXING UP A VARIETY OF TOPICS, I DO NOT NOW DWELL ON THIS ONE let it suffice to remember that whatever offices of piety are bestowed anywhere else than on god alone are of the nature of sacrilege first superstition attached divine honours to the sun and stars or to idols afterwards ambition followed ambition which decking man in the spoils of god dared to profane all that was sacred and though the principle of worshipping a supreme deity continued to be held Still, the practice was to sacrifice promiscuously to genii and minor gods, or departed heroes. So prone is the descent to this vice of communicating to a crowd that which God strictly claims as his own peculiar right. End of section 19.